Good morning. Um, the scripture reading for today is from Ruth. If you haven't figured that out already, ready, we're in Ruth. Um, it's from Ruth chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative. Oh, wow. Elamelech? All right, there we go. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the whole of your word, and we particularly rejoice this morning over beautiful passages like Ruth 4, and I pray, I pray that by your spirit, you just help us glimpse the beauty, the glory that's here, and lift our spirits, lift our eyes, our heads, to see you and the beauty of all that you have promised and that it is indeed true. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by your spirit. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4 for the finale of our series. Our series has been called The Light Shines. And in fact, this is the finale not only of the series, but I've entitled this sermon, The Finale. And that is because Ruth chapter 4, it gives us a picture of what God's hesed, his faithful love, looks like in the end, at, at the finale. Like, Ruth 4, it's, it's just a picture, it's a, it's a preview. It's not the end, obviously, of the entire story of history, but it gives us a picture, a preview of what it will look like. We're obviously not there yet at the true end of all things. You remember when the book of Ruth takes place? Chapter 1 and verse 1 says, in the days of the judges, in the days when the judges ruled. And if you remember, as we walked through the entire book of Judges, we saw that those days were the darkest in Israel's history. And it's amidst, it's amidst those dark days that we have seen the book of Ruth shine a light on God's faithful love. It shined a light on God's faithful love in literally every place, the dark days, other in every place. And it does that for us so that even in the darkest of days, we will hold on to hope. I mean, just think through the chapters of Ruth. We've seen 
a light shining on God's faithful love amidst the famine, or in other words, amidst our hardest and darkest times. We've seen the light of God's faithful love shining in the field, or in other words, in our mundane daily routines. And last week we saw God's faithful love shine forth from the floor, in other words, from the unexpected and surprising places. And now we move from the famine, the field, the floor, to the finale. The finale, the, the place that I think helps us hold on to hope in all other places. Like in other words, when, when we find ourselves in the famine, in the field, at the, at the floor, I think, I think it's the bright light of the finale shining forth that, that gives us hope and helps us to endure. You can think of it like, think of it like the prize at the, at the end of, at, at the finish line of a race for a runner. It's the, it's the side of the prize that gives them the energy to endure. The, the finale is the sight we need to see in order to keep running the race of faith. The finale, it, it keeps us, even in our darkest of days, it keeps us clinging to Christ. Or to put it in Ruth's terminology, the finale keeps us coming to shelter under God's wings. Do you remember that phraseology? It's been used multiple times throughout this book to give us a picture of what it means to trust in God, to cling to him. Like a baby bird shelters underneath the wings of its mother, have we not seen Ruth take shelter under the wings of Yahweh? Amidst a famine, when Ruth's father-in-law died, her brother-in-law died, her own husband died, in the midst of that, she chose to stick by her mother-in-law, Naomi's side, she stayed with Naomi. She told Naomi, your God is going to be my God. Ruth trusted in Yahweh to protect her, to provide for her, when the smart thing to do would have been for her to go back home to her own people in Moab. That's surely where she would have found protection and provision. But Ruth put her hope and her trust in Naomi's God. She made Yahweh her God. She came to shelter underneath his wings for him to protect and provide. And we have seen Yahweh do precisely that. And he has done it through Boaz. Remember meeting Boaz in Ruth chapter 2? We've seen Boaz throughout this book become Yahweh's hands and feet. In other words, he's, he's been the means that God has used to protect and provide. It's through Boaz that Yahweh provided grain to fill up Naomi and Ruth's famine of food. And last week in Ruth chapter 3, we saw Ruth ask Boaz, to become the means of filling up her famine of family. She said, in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 9, she said, Boaz, spread your wings over me. Yes, I've come to, to shelter underneath the wings of Yahweh, and Boaz, you're going to be the means of Yahweh's wings being spread over me. God's protection and God's provision, you're going to be the means of his hesed, his, his faithful love. Shades, shades, see this. This is a picture of what we need amidst the famine, the field, the floor. In every place in our lives, we need to take shelter underneath the faithful, loving wings of our Lord. We need to trust him to protect and to provide everything that we need. And I believe that the picture we see of his faithful love in the finale is what keeps us in that posture. 
when we see what God's love will look like in the end, it keeps us in the midst of these moments coming back to him, to cling to him, to shelter under his wings. So, this morning we need to see the light of God's faithful love shine forth from the finale in Ruth chapter 4. See it with me. Ruth chapter 4, let's start in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, the gate of the city of Bethlehem. And he sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. All right. In order to orient ourselves back into this story, we need to remember two things. Or if you haven't been here before, hopefully this will catch you up. We need to remember two things right here. We need to remember what's happening and what it means. So first, what's happening? Chapter 3 ended with Boaz promising to redeem Ruth. Remember, in ancient Israel, a widow who had no children, she'd lost everything. She had no rights to her deceased husband's property, his inheritance, land. Like She was doomed to a life of poverty. But she could be redeemed. In other words, her husband's nearest kin could marry her. And their firstborn son would legally count as the son of her deceased husband. You see what that means? That means that she gets the rights to all of her deceased husband's property. It becomes hers in her stead until her son comes of age, at which point he becomes responsible for caring for her. Like it's a way of redeeming, resurrecting everything that death took from her. Legacy, land, protection, provision. Boaz promised to do this for Ruth. There's just one problem. Boaz is not the closest kin. He's second in line. So legally, if the closer relative wants to redeem Ruth, then, then Boaz has got to defer. And we know, we know that he is a worthy man of honor, and he will do that. So right here in chapter 4 and verse 1, what we're seeing is Boaz going to court, basically, to settle the matter. He goes to Bethlehem city gates. The city gates in ancient Israel was basically like going to city hall, going to the courthouse. And he sits down, which is a, a signal. It's a sign to everyone there of like, I got legal business that I need to take care of here. That's what's happening. That's the first thing we need to remember. But secondly, what does it mean? What does all of this mean? So, what we need to remember is that throughout Ruth, again and again, we have seen pictures of what God's faithful love, hesed, that's the Hebrew word. We've seen pictures of what God's faithful love looks like. Those pictures have come at us through our main characters, through Ruth, through Naomi, through Boaz. And primarily, we are meant to see what God's faithful love towards us looks like through Boaz. Theologically, we call Boaz a type of Christ. In other words, he foreshadows what Christ will look like. There are ways in which Boaz's life is like a preview of the life of the Redeemer that God will send in Jesus Christ. You'll find these all throughout the Old Testament. Noah is a type of Christ. Moses is a type of Christ. King David is a type of Christ. All of them have different elements of their lives that foreshadow exactly what the Lord will do through Jesus. And so, through Boaz... God is giving us a preview. 
of what he will do through Christ. You can see that very easily. Uh, Boaz has pursued Ruth to be her redeemer, like Jesus pursues his bride, the church, to be our redeemer. Through Boaz, we're meant to see a picture of the Lord's faithful love for us. That is what this means. That is what we get in Ruth chapter 4. Through Boaz, we are going to get a picture of what the Lord's faithful love for us looks like in the finale. We've seen this picture in every single chapter of Ruth. In fact, we've seen three pictures of what faithful love looks like in every chapter of Ruth. Do you remember these? In every chapter, we've seen a picture of the Lord's faithful love for us. We've seen a picture of what faithful love for others is supposed to look like. And we've seen a picture of what our faithful love for the Lord is supposed to look like. Guess what? We're going to get those same three pictures again right here in chapter four. And right now, we're sinking our teeth down into the first one. Number one, the Lord's faithful love for us. The Lord, what, what, what does that look like in the end? Like at the culmination of all things, at the end of our story, at the end of history, what does, how does this story end? What does the Lord's faithful love for us look like? Through Boaz, we see two things. Claiming and completing. Every main picture I give you today is going to have two subpoints. There's my outline for all my note takers. So the picture of the Lord's faithful love for us in the finale, what does it look like? It looks like claiming and completing. Let me show you what I mean. Read verse 1 again. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said to him, turn aside, friend. Friend is not the greatest uh, translation of the Hebrew word right there. Uh, the Hebrew word literally just means a certain one. It's, it's a word used for an unnamed character. It would be like uh, a saying, Mr. So-and-so. Hang on to that. That's important. Turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. Sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. You keep reading and Boaz gathers a quorum of 10 city elders. We can make everything legal. And then in verse 3, he says to Mr. So-and-so, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Uh, Park, just say it with confidence. Like, it doesn't matter how you pronounce biblical names. You just say them with confidence, and everybody will be like, oh, I, I get it, yeah. Elimelech. Uh, the word selling right here, again, not the greatest of translation. I, I shouldn't be too hard on the translators. The Hebrew is notoriously difficult right here in Ruth chapter 4, but it's not the greatest translation because it implies that the land of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, it implies that that land belongs to her. It doesn't. If that had been the case, we would not have had to see her and Ruth scrape by to survive. Uh, they would not be living in poverty. They would have a piece of land that they could easily sell to survive off of. No, in all likelihood, what had happened was Elimelech, before he ever took his family and moved to Moab, he would have sold his property. He would have done everything he could to 
help his family survive. So in all likelihood, the land belongs to somebody else right now at this moment. Naomi is not selling the land. She is seeking to give the right of redemption to family kin so they can buy the land back and get it back into the family. If you have the right of redemption, then the, the person that currently owns it, they have to sell to me if I request it. So that's what she's doing. She's going, who's the next of kin that I can give this legal right to so they can get the land back into the family? She couldn't do that herself, but she could pass that right on to a redeemer. So Boaz basically tells Mr. So-and-so, you're the closest relative. So like, do you want to redeem this land? Do you want to buy it back? If not, I'm going to do it. All of our spirits fall as we hear Mr. So-and-so say, yeah, I'll redeem that land. It looks like our fairy tale wedding and story of redemption between Ruth and Boaz isn't going to play out after all. However, Boaz has one more card to play. He's not ready to fold his hand just yet. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy, better translation, acquire, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Mr. So-and-so looks like a little bit of a jerk right here. Like he wanted to exercise that right of redemption as long as the land would benefit him, but the moment he realizes it's not going to, he's going to pass. But before we all assume that this guy is a total jerk, it's important to recognize that he is actually parallel to another character in our story. He parallels Orpah. Do you remember her? You got to go all the way back to chapter one. Naomi had two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And if you remember, when all three of those ladies lose their husbands, she tells both of her daughter-in-laws, go back to Moab, go back to your home country. It's, it's going to be better for you there. You stay with me and you're headed into a destitute life of poverty back in Bethlehem. And Orpah listens. Remember, she, she goes back home. Not because she was a jerk, but because that was the wise, normal expected thing to do. No one in this cultural context would blame Orpah. In fact, they'd do the same thing if they were in her shoes. And that, if you remember back in chapter one, that served to highlight the radical, unusual, surprising, self-sacrificial nature of Ruth's love. That she would cling to Naomi. In covenant love, I'm going with you, no matter what it costs, even if it leads to my death. The same thing is happening right here in chapter 4. Mr. So-and-so is doing the wise 
normal, expected thing to do. Like if he were only redeeming the land, that would likely end up being a financial gain to him. But to Mary Ruth, the Moabitess, I mean, first of all, that's not going to help the social standing, marrying a foreigner. But secondly, their firstborn son will legally be the son of her deceased husband. What if he's their only son? Mr. So-and-so's got to be thinking, then he inherits my land too. My name will actually be the one that dies out. My legacy, my land, gone. The risk of doing this redemption thing is too great. And no one, shades no one in that cultural context, would blame him. In fact, they would do the same thing if they were in his shoes. And what this does is it serves to highlight the radical, surprising, self-sacrificial nature of Boaz's faithful love. He does what no one else would dare to do. He claims Ruth. Look at verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, your witnesses this day that I have not bought, I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, her sons. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have acquired to be my wife. Even though this isn't of advantage to him, he says he's done it to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Keep reading and you'll see that Boaz, he's... He's given a strange receipt in the midst of this thing. Mr. So-and-so actually pulls off one of his own sandals and gives it to Boaz. It's like a proof of purchase that the right of redemption now belongs to Boaz. In other words, if the day should ever come where Mr. So-and-so wants to be like, hey, I actually have first dibs on this land, Boaz can produce the sandal and be like, nah, the right of redemption is mine. In other words, he has claimed Ruth for keeps. Done. Shades. This is a picture. This is a What does the faithful love of the Lord look like in the finale? It is a claiming love that claims us. It does what we so often feel like no one else would dare to do. Can I tell you? Can I just tell you that, that this, this is the most powerful part of Ruth for me, like, like personally. Throughout this entire story, Ruth has not belonged. Like we feel that from the moment we meet her. Her mother-in-law is like, go back to your family, your people, where you belong. And she doesn't. And for the rest of the story, reread the book, what's she known as? Ruth the Moabitess. In other words, Ruth the stranger, Ruth the outsider, Ruth the foreigner, Ruth who doesn't belong. And every time we hear her called that throughout the book, it begs the question, will anyone claim her? Boaz does so interesting. Do you remember Boaz's first question the first time he saw Ruth? Whose young woman is that? The response was, she's the Moabitess. She doesn't belong to anybody. 
Boaz does what no one would dare to do. He claims her. He, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that his own name might pass away. He, he doesn't care that this isn't going to be about him, that it's going to perpetuate the line of a, another man. He is willing to sacrifice his life and his, les, his legacy to, to resurrect what death took from Ruth. He doesn't care what this costs. He does what no one else will dare to do. He claims Ruth. Boaz becomes where she belongs. And Shades, this is the most powerful part of this story for me personally because the deepest, darkest hurt in my heart I don't know why, this is, this is a place where we are able to be open and honest, and that includes me as the pastor, like you invite me and allow me to be open and honest, and I love that. And I, I've gotten the opportunity to be that with you throughout the years, and I don't know why, but this, this is harder than like telling you about my lifelong battles with depression, than telling you about my experience of being sexually abused as a child, like this is harder for some reason, and I, and I think I don't know. It feels silly. The deepest, darkest hurt in my heart is feeling like I don't belong. Like if you dig down underneath every negative thought that I have, why do you feel that way, Jonathan? Why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? Why do you feel, and you just keep digging down. Here, here is the core lie at which you will arrive every time. Jonathan, you don't belong. Nothing is easier for the enemy to get me to believe. Jonathan, you don't belong in any place. You were born in Texas, but you weren't raised there, so you don't belong there. You were raised in Georgia, but you weren't born there, so you don't belong there. You live in Birmingham now, but you're not a native, and it doesn't matter how long you live here, you will never be one. You don't belong in any place. You don't belong to any people. Not your family. You're the odd one out. Not with friends. You're going to be the fifth wheel. Not even at shades. Don't care that you've been there for as long as you have. You're out of place and you're in the way of God, what God actually wants to do. That's the lie that echoes through my head all the time. You don't belong in any place. You don't belong to any people. And you don't belong to any purpose. In fact, you're in the way of God's purpose. Shades, I don't share any of that with you to get you to feel sorry for me. I share it with you just to let you peek into the lies that go through my head and heart because I am willing to bet the same ones go through yours. I share that with you so you can hear the lies that go through my head and my heart that I believe only the finale can put to death. Only the reality, the truth that Jesus Christ has and will publicly declare before the world, Jonathan, you're mine. You belong to me, no matter the price. Jonathan, I don't care if you're a Moabite. In other words, I don't care if you think that me claiming you will bring shame on me. I'll take on all of that. I'll risk my name and I will claim you by the cross. Shades, Jesus is where I belong he has acquired me by his blood. I know I can show you the receipt. 
The empty cross is proof that I am purchased. Christ has done what no one else would dare to do, what no one else even can do. He has claimed me, and it is for keeps. I know that. I know that because he promises to bring his purchase of me to completion. I know he's purchased me for keeps because he promises to bring that purchase to completion. His, in other words, his faithful love doesn't just claim, it also completes. That's the picture that we see in verse 13. Look at it. Boaz doesn't just claim Ruth publicly. He completes. He brings what he claimed to fruition. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Who gave Ruth conception? The Lord. Yahweh, we have seen God act providentially all throughout this book. But only twice, read through this book, and only twice are we told about his direct action. Right here, and then one other time. Do you remember where it was? Back in chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 6, there we're told that the Lord brought about the growing of barley. And here we're told he brings about the giving of birth. The two central needs of the book, the two famines as it were, famine of food, famine of family, the two things, the two emptinesses that only God can fill, and he does. His, his faithful love shades fills everything that was empty. It brings redemption to completion. And shades, don't don't misread this story of Ruth right here. This is, this is not a promise that everything that goes bad in life will work out fine in life while you're still living. No, this is a picture that points beyond this story to the larger story of God's grand redemption. And the promise does exist there that in the end, he will bring all things to completion. Every famine filled, all that death has destroyed, undone, the entire curse of sin reversed. That's what we're getting a glimpse of through Boaz. We're getting a glimpse of Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, when he comes again and brings all things to their final end. Shades like, do you, do you see, do you see God's faithful love in the finale that he will permanently and perfectly shelter you under his wings? claim you and bring that claim to completion. If we see that, if we see that, like it changes everything, not just then when it comes in the end, but it changes everything now. That's what we see through the remaining pictures of faithful love in Ruth chapter four. So let's look at the second one. Number two, we've seen God's faithful love for us in the finale. Number two, let's see what faithful love for others looks like. Faithful love for others. In other words, how does beholding God's faithful love in the finale, that he will claim us, that he will complete, how does that change how we love other people right now? Two things, beholding and blessing. Beholding and blessing. Look back at verse 11. 
This is right after Boaz has publicly told everybody. He's told the elders and everybody standing around that he's going to claim and redeem Ruth. And he said, you all are witnesses. How do they respond to that? Look at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez from Tamar Bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Beholding and blessing. The people behold, they see, they behold Boaz's claiming and completing love. In other words, they behold a picture of God's faithful love in the finale. And it stirs up hope in them. Remember the days in which all of this has taken place. This is in the dark days of the judges. Not a whole lot of hope to go around. And they behold, through Boaz, a beautiful picture of God's covenant love that claims and brings that claim to completion. And this stirs up hope in them. I know that because they bless Boaz by pointing him to the hope they now have. They, they have hope that his house will be built up. Like Israel was originally built up through Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, these were two women who both experienced barrenness, but through whom God founded and brought about the entire nation of Israel. They're saying, like that, Boaz, we recognize the fact, Ruth, she's been married before for 10 years and apparently had no children, was barren during that entire time. But God's hesed on display through you has stirred up hope in us. So we pray for God's blessing to flow like it did with Rachel and Leah. We, pray, we have hope that he's going to do something like that through you and through Ruth. Not only that, their blessing goes further than that. They pray for Boaz's name to be renowned in Bethlehem and in Ephrathah, the surrounding area. The, when they behold faithful love willing to claim Ruth, even if it costs Boaz his name, they have such hope stirred up in them that they pray that will actually make his name be remembered. And Shades, it does. You remember Mr. So-and-so who tried to do the smart thing to protect his own name? What is his name? I think Ruth 4 calls him Mr. So-and-so. His name has been forgotten. But Boaz, who risked his name, he has been blessed beyond being renowned in Bethlehem all the way to 3,000 years later being renowned in Birmingham. The people's prayer for blessing doesn't stop there. Finally, they pray for Boaz's house to be like that of Perez, who was born to Judah and Tamar. And that's a really weird story. I ain't got time to go through it all this morning, but the reason they point back to it is because Perez was a child of redemption. A similar uh, very dissimilar, but has some similarities, situation, a redemption situation. And so what they're saying is we have the same hope for you, that in this redemption situation, a child of redemption will be born. 
In, in other words, look at, look at the holistic picture of what's happening here. When these people behold a picture of God's covenant love in the finale, how it claims and completes, when they behold that, it stirs up their hope and then they show faithful love to Boaz by pointing him to the hope they have. It doesn't quite make sense yet. It's okay. The Bible is patient with us. It gives us another picture. The exact same thing happens again in verses 14 to 17. This time it happens with the women of Bethlehem. The women of Bethlehem, when they behold the claiming and completing love of God, it stirs up their hope so that they bless Naomi, pointing her to the hope that they have. Look at verse 14. This is after Ruth and Boaz have married and they've had a baby. Verse 14. Then the women, this is the women of the city of Bethlehem, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. They're talking about this baby, this redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, your gray hairs, it literally says. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons. You can have the perfect family set up. Ruth's more valuable. She has given birth to him. This is not the first time that we have seen an interaction between the women of Bethlehem and Naomi. Can you remember all the way back to the end of chapter one? Naomi's husband and sons have died. She returns destitute to Bethlehem after being gone for 10 years. And, and the women of Bethlehem are scarcely able to recognize her. And Naomi, at that point, she has no way of seeing how it is that God is at work or how he will work. And so as she reintroduces herself to the women of Bethlehem, she asks them to give her a new name. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Check out verse 17 of Ruth chapter 4. And the women of the neighborhood gave him, Naomi's grandson, they gave him a name. Naomi had asked for them to give her a name. They would not acquiesce to her request, but now they give a name to her grandson. Saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed means one who serves. Obadiah, servant of the Lord. This is just broader. Obed, one who serves. It's like these women are saying, Naomi, don't you see? The Lord has served you and met every need. He has redeemed and restored your life to you through the birth of a son. Funny, that's how God often in Scripture likes to bring about redemption, almost like it's foreshadowing something. He has brought about your redemption through the birth of a son. Through that son, he has brought you under his wings. Shades, 
This, what these women are doing right here, this is what faithful love for others looks like in light of the finale. In other words, when we see God, when we personally get a picture of God's claiming and completing love, that stirs our hope. So we faithfully love others by blessing them, pointing them to the hope that we have. In my own life, recently, just over the last several weeks, there's, there's a dear friend of mine, and her husband recently passed away unexpectedly. And I have, I have had the, the honor of seeing her faith in the midst of famine, the hardest of days. I've had the honor of seeing her faith in the midst of the field as she tries to return to the dailiness of life. I've, I've had the honor of seeing her faith from the floor in the most unexpected of ways. Like she, she has invited me in and let me see her wrestle with God on the hardest of days. And even as she wrestles, she never lets go of faith that God has claimed her and one day he will bring all things, including her story, to completion. I get to behold that. And she has no idea, no idea how much the Lord has stirred up hope in me through beholding his work in her. And as that hope is stirred, what does that lead me to do? It leads me first, I hope, to bless her by continuing to point her towards that hope when she can't see it. I hope this morning it leads me to bless you by pointing you towards the hope that we have in the Lord. This, this is what faithful love for others looks like in light of the finale. We behold God's faithful love and we bless others by pointing them to it. Beholding and blessing. Final picture, number three. Final picture of faithful love in Ruth 4. Faithful love for the Lord. When you behold God's claiming, completing love, it doesn't just lead you to bless others, love others faithfully. It leads you to faithfully love Him. What does that look like? Two things. Touching and trusting. Touching and trusting. In other words, God doesn't just give us his promise that he will bring redemption to completion. He also gives us previews, tangible, touchable previews. And when we reach out and touch, that leads us to trust. See what I mean? Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child laid him on her lap, became his nurse, or we would say nanny. Naomi's empty arms are filled in a way that she can feel. And so she steps fully in this new role of being a grandmother that God has called her to. God's, God's promise to fill his people's emptiness through redemption. In other words, it, it, it wasn't just words. It came with the preview that Naomi could touch and hold and embrace, leading her to trust. Shades, understand, 
This is not the end of Naomi's life. We don't know the rest of the troubles that Naomi would face throughout the rest of her days. Obed was not a fix-all for everything, but he was a preview. He was a preview of what God will do with all of our emptiness, not just Naomi's. He will fill every empty place ever. I know that because of verses 18 to 22. And if you've read ahead, you're like, Jonathan, that's a genealogy. I know. And it's gospel good news. Look at it, verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Ten generations. I don't think that's an accident. Like he intentionally, this author intentionally chooses his starting point. He doesn't just start us off with Boaz. Ten generations. Naomi's story in Ruth chapter 1 began with ten years. Ten years of emptiness. And now it ends with ten generations, ten lifetimes of fullness that culminates in Israel's great king, David, who Naomi wouldn't even live to see. Like even at the end of her story, she has no way of knowing everything that God has been doing, everything that God will do. Obed was only a preview, a preview to the promises that God intended to fulfill. And promises not just made to Naomi, but to all of his people. In the dark days of the judges, in the dark days of Naomi's life, God's faithful love was at work to bring about his promised king, David, who would change everything for Israel. And not just for Israel, but for all his people, including you and me, because we, we can see even farther than our author can right here. We can see past the 10 generations that this family line goes all the way through to get to Israel's great King David. We can see past that, that it comes down to Israel's greatest King, Christ. Shades like, do you see? Do you see? Naomi had no way, no way of knowing where a famine of food and family would ultimately lead. But if those don't happen, Ruth doesn't come into her life. Ruth never marries Boaz. Boaz doesn't have Obed. Ruth doesn't have Obed. Obed doesn't have Jesse. We get no King David. We get no Jesus. We get no salvation. God, in his great sovereignty, works his faithful love even through tragedy in ways that we can scarcely dream. It makes my head hurt to try and think about this kind of stuff. But God in his sovereignty works his faithful love even through tragedy so that no tragedy wins. Famine doesn't win. Widowhood doesn't win. Disease doesn't win. Cancer doesn't win. Death itself doesn't win. God sovereignly works through death itself to bring about life. God in his great sovereignty works his faithful love in every place, 
in ways that we can scarcely drink. But he gives us previews, previews that we can touch that lead us to trust. Even, even right now, Shades, right now, you are invited. You're invited to come to this table and to touch a preview of God's promises. Little, little piece of bread dipped in the cup. It's a preview of a promise that one day you will sit down with him at a much larger table for a much larger feast. No breadcrumbs and little dipping in juice there. Drinking and feasting. This is a preview, a touchable, tangible, tasteable one. It is to lead us to trust in the promise that one day we will sit down at a feast with him, claimed and complete, forever to rest under his wings. Shades, that's the finale. Do, do you see? Like whether you're in the midst of famine, a hard place, or you feel like you're living in the field, mundane, everyday dailiness of life, or if you find yourself at the floor, a place where you least expect God's faithful love to reach and show up, like wherever you are this morning, see the light of God's faithful love shine through the finale. You are claimed and will be complete. Come, touch, taste a preview of that promise. Trust.